Hello there, and welcome to Sarah's Bookshelf. That's me, Sarah, and I am so excited to have you here with me. This is a podcast where I share my love of literature and storytelling with you. And together, we get to read some of the world's best stories. So let's dive in. Today, we are continuing the novella called Candide, a satirical story written by the philosopher Voltaire in 1759. The name Candide means optimism and plays into the satire of the whole story. I am reading from a translation by John Butt. Just a quick disclaimer before I begin. Because of the time in which this story was written, and due to its purposely dramatic nature, there are several terms and phrases used to describe humans from different walks of life that we no longer use or accept because they are demeaning and inhumane. I have left them in this telling, to keep it true to the text. But I also didn't want to leave that unaddressed. We cannot change how things were. But what we can do is acknowledge them and learn and grow together. The language that we use and the way we talk to and about other humans matters deeply. If you would like to talk about this, there is an email in the show notes and I would be more than happy to hear from you. Let us be conscious of how we treat one another and make the world a better place for all of us together. Chapter 13. How Candide was forced to leave the lovely Cunegonde and the old woman. Having heard the old woman's story, the lovely Cunegonde began to pay her all the respect due to a person of her rank and quality. She agreed to her proposal and persuaded all the passengers in turn to tell her their adventures. Candide and she had to admit that the old woman was right. It is a great pity, said Candide, that the normal custom at an auto da fe was broken and our sagacious Pangloss hanged for otherwise he would have made some remarkable observations on the moral and physical evils which infest the earth and sea, and with all due respect to him, I should have made bold to offer a few objections. While each passenger was telling his story, the ship was making good progress, and at last reached Buenos Aires, where Cunegonde, Captain Candide, and the old woman landed and went to wait upon the governor, named Don Fernando de Barra y Figuera y Mascarenes y Lampurdos y Souza, a nobleman with a degree of pride appropriate to one who bore so many names. He spoke to people with lordly contempt and with his nose in the air, and he harangued so loudly and unsparingly, assuming so imposing an attitude and affecting such an arrogant bearing that everyone who saluted him wanted to hit him. He had an ungovernable greed for women, and since Cunegonde appeared to him the most beautiful woman he had ever seen, the first thing he did was to ask if she were the captain's wife. The manner in which he put the question alarmed Candide. He did not dare to say she was his wife because in fact she was not, 
He did not dare to say she was his sister, because that was not true either. And though the white lie was fashionable with the ancients and can be useful to the moderns, his soul was too pure to commit such a treason against truth. Lady Cunegonde intends to do me the honour of being my wife, he said. And we humbly entreat your excellency to be so condescending as to attend our wedding. Don Fernando di Bada y Figuera y Mascarenes y Lampurdos y Souza smiled grimly, and giving a twirl to his moustaches, he ordered Captain Candide to go and review his troops. Candide obeyed, and the governor was left alone with Lady Cunegonde. He declared his passion to her, and swore that he would marry her the following day with the church's blessing or without, just as a lady of such charming appearance should prefer. Cunegonde begged a quarter of an hour's grace to collect her thoughts, and went to take the old woman's advice on what to do. Madame, said the old woman to Cunegonde, you have seventy-two quarterings to your coat of arms, but not a farthing to your name. You have only yourself to blame if you do not become the wife of the greatest nobleman in South America, with the most handsome of moustaches. What right have you to pride yourself on an unshakable fidelity? Remember that you have been ravished by the Bulgars, that a Jew and an Inquisitor have enjoyed your favors, and reflect that misfortunes bring some privileges. I confess that, if I were in your place, I should have no hesitation in marrying the governor and making the captain's fortune. While the old woman was speaking with the prudence which age and experience offer, a cutter was seen entering the harbor with a Spanish magistrate and officers of the secret police on board. This is what had happened. The old woman had been quite right in thinking that it was a friar with long sleeves who had stolen Cunegonde's money and jewels at Badajoz, when she and Candide were making their escape to Cadiz. The friar tried to sell some of the stones to a jeweler, but the shopman recognized them as the property of the Grand Inquisitor. Before he was hanged, the friar confessed that he had stolen them, and described the persons he had robbed and the direction they had taken. Cunegonde's flight with Candide was already known. They were followed to Cadiz, and no time was lost in sending a ship in pursuit. The ship was now in Buenos Aires harbor, and the rumor soon spread that a Spanish magistrate was disembarking in pursuit of the murderers of the Grand Inquisitor. The prudent old woman immediately saw what was to be done. "'You cannot escape,' she told Cunegonde. "'But you have nothing to fear.' It was not you who killed his eminence, and besides, the governor loves you so violently that he will not allow you to be molested. So stay where you are. She then hurried away to find Candide. Make haste and be off, she cried, or you'll be burnt at the stake in an hour. There was no time to lose. But how was he to leave Cunegonde, and where was he to find shelter? Chapter 14 The Reception Candide and Cacambo Met With from the Jesuits of Paraguay Candide had brought from Cadiz the type of servant often found on the Spanish coasts as well as in the colonies. He was a quarter Spaniard of half-breed Argentine stock and had been successively chorister, verger, sailor, monk, commercial traveler, soldier, and footman. His name was Cacambo, and he was devoted to his master because his master was a very good fellow. On hearing the old woman's news, he promptly saddled the two thoroughbreds and said, Let's take her advice, sir, and make off while the coast is clear. 
but Candide burst into tears. My darling Cunegonde, he exclaimed, to have to leave you just when the governor had promised to come to our wedding. What's to become of you, Cunegonde, now I have brought you so far from home? She'll be all right, said Cacambo. Women are never at a loss. God looks after them. Hurry up, sir. Where are you taking me? asked Candide. Where are we going? What shall we do without Cunegonde? Why, surely, said Cacambo. You are going to make war against the Jesuits. Let's go and fight on their side instead. I am pretty sure of the way, so I'll take you to their kingdom. They'll be delighted to have a captain trained in the Bulgar army, and you will make a vast fortune. When you don't get what you expect on one side, you find it on the other. Fresh sights and fresh adventures are always welcome. So you have already been to Paraguay? said Candide. Indeed I have, replied Cacambo. I was once a servant in the College of the Assumption, so I know how the Reverend Fathers govern, as well as I know the streets of Cadiz. It's a wonderful system they have. There are thirty provinces in their kingdom, and it is more than three hundred leagues across. The Reverend Fathers own the whole lot, and the people own nothing. That's what I call a masterpiece of reason and justice. I don't think I have ever seen such godlike creatures as the Reverend Fathers. They fight the kings of Spain and Portugal over here, and give them absolution in Europe. In this country, they kill Spaniards, and in Madrid, they send them to heaven. Delightful, isn't it? But we must keep moving. You will be the happiest man alive. How pleased the fathers will be to have a captain trained in the Bulgar army. As soon as they reached the first frontier post, Cacambo told the guard that a captain wanted to speak to his reverence, the colonel. A soldier was sent to inform headquarters, while a Paraguayan hurried to the colonel to tell him the news. Candide and Cacambo were first of all disarmed and deprived of their two horses. They were then conducted between two ranks of soldiers to the officer, who stood at the end of the row, halberd in hand and sword at his side, with his beretta on his head and his cassock tucked up. He made a sign at which twenty-four soldiers surrounded the two newcomers. A sergeant told them that they must wait. The colonel could not speak to them, he said, because his reverence, the father provincial, did not allow any Spaniard to open his mouth except in his presence, nor to stay more than three hours in the country. Where is his reverence, the father provincial? asked Cacambo. He has said mass, and now he has gone on parade, replied the sergeant. You will not be able to kiss his spurs for another three hours. But the captain isn't a Spaniard, said Cacambo. He's a German, and he is dying of hunger like me. Can't we have something to eat while we are waiting for his reverence? The sergeant went straight off to report this conversation to the colonel. Praise be to God, said this dignitary. I can speak to him as he is a German. Have him brought to my arbor. Candide was immediately conducted to a nook amongst the trees, decorated with a pretty colonnade of green and gold marble, and with latticework cages containing hummingbirds, birds of paradise, parakeets, guinea fowl, and other rare birds. An excellent dinner was served on gold plates, and while the Paraguayans ate their maize on wooden dishes in the open field in the full blaze of the sun, his reverence the colonel retired to the shade of his arbor. He was a handsome young man, with a round face and a fresh complexion. He had arched eyebrows and bright eyes. The tips of his ears were red and his lips scarlet. Though he looked proud, his arrogance was neither of the Spanish nor of the Jesuit kind. 
Candide and Cacambo were given back both their arms and their two horses. And Cacambo had some oats brought to the arbor so that he could keep a sharp eye on the horses, for fear of a surprise. Before sitting down to table, Candide kissed the hem of the colonel's cassock. So you are a German, began the Jesuit in that language. Yes, your reverence, said Candide. As they spoke, they looked at each other in astonishment and seemed unable to control their emotion. What part of Germany do you come from? asked the Jesuit. From that dirty province of Westphalia, replied Candide. I was born at Castle Thunder Ten Trunk. Good gracious me, exclaimed the colonel. You don't mean to say so. How extraordinary, exclaimed Candide. Can this really be you, said the colonel. This is beyond the bounds of possibility, said Candide. They both fell back in amazement, and then embraced each other and burst into tears. Are you really the lovely Cunegonde's brother, your reverence? said Candide. Why, you were killed by the Bulgars, weren't you? Are you sure you are the Baron's son? Fancy your being a Jesuit in Paraguay! This world is a strange place, I must confess. How happy our dear Pangloss would be if he had not been hanged. Some slaves and Paraguayans were pouring wine into glasses of rock crystal. The colonel dismissed them, and folding Candide in his arms, gave thanks to God and St. Ignatius while the tears streamed down his face. You will be even more astonished, said Candide, who was weeping as copiously as the colonel. You will be even more excited and moved to hear that your sister, Lady Cunegonde, who you thought was disemboweled, is in the best of health. Where is she? Not far off. She's with the governor of Buenos Aires, and I had come to make war on you. Every word they spoke during this long conversation revealed some new marvel, and their eyes shone with the excitement of talking and listening. Since they were Germans, they continued to sit over their meal while waiting for the Reverend Father Provincial, and the colonel addressed his dear Candide in these words. Chapter 15 How Candide Killed the Brother of His Beloved Cunegonde As long as I live, I shall remember that terrible day when I saw my father and mother killed and my sister ravished. When the Bulgars withdrew, that darling sister was nowhere to be found, and my mother, my father, and I were thrown into a cart with two servants and three little boys who had been massacred, and were taken to be buried in a Jesuit's chapel two leagues from our family seat. A Jesuit sprinkled holy water on us. It was salt water, and a few drops of the disgusting stuff got into my eyes. The Reverend Father, noticing my eyelids flicker, put his hand to my heart and felt it beating. So I was rescued, and at the end of three weeks I had quite recovered. You know, my dear Candide, what a good-looking boy I was. Well... I grew up more handsome still, and the Reverend Father Kroost, the father superior of the house, took a fancy to me. He made me a novice, and shortly afterwards I was sent to Rome because the Father General of the Society needed some young German Jesuit recruits. The rulers of Paraguay accept as few Spanish Jesuits as they can. They prefer strangers, since they think they can get the better of them. So I was selected by the Reverend Father General to go and work in this vineyard and I set off with two others, a Pole and a Tyrolean. 
On arrival, I was appointed subdeacon and lieutenant, and today I am a colonel and a priest. We are engaging the King of Spain's troops with the utmost vigor, and I assure you they will be excommunicated and beaten. Surely Providence has sent you here to help us. But is it really true that my dear sister Cunegonde is in the neighborhood, staying with the governor of Buenos Aires? Candide swore that it was absolutely true, and tears started to their eyes once more. The baron called Candide his brother and savior, and embraced him times without number. My dear Candide, he said, I feel sure that we shall ride in triumph through the town and rescue my sister Cunegonde. That's what I am longing for, said Candide, because I was expecting to marry her, and indeed I still hope to. You insolent fellow, exclaimed the baron. You have the impudence to think of marrying my sister, who has seventy-two quarterings in her coat of arms, and you dare to talk to me of such hot-headed notion? Have you no sense of shame? Candide was dumbfounded at this outburst. Reverend Father, he replied, all the quarterings in the world would make no difference. I rescued your sister from the arms of a Jew and of an Inquisitor. She is under the deepest obligations to me, and she wants to be my wife. My master Pangloss used to tell me that men are equal, and I shall marry her without any hesitation. We shall see about that, you rascal, said the Jesuit Baron von Thunder Tentronck. And with those words, he struck him across the face with the flat of his sword. Candide instantly drew his own and plunged it up to the hilt in the baron's stomach. But as he withdrew the dripping blade, he began to weep and cried, Oh God, what have I done? I have killed my old master, my friend, my brother-in-law. I am the best-tempered man there ever was, yet I have already killed three men and two of them were priests. Cacambo, who had been standing sentinel at the arbor door, rushed in. There is nothing left but to sell our lives dearly, said his master. They will undoubtedly break into the arbor, and we must die sword in hand. Cacambo had often been in similar trouble, so he kept his head. He took the Jesuit gown off the baron and put it on Candide, handed him the dead man's square hat, and made him mount his horse. It was all done in the twinkling of an eye. Gallop, sir, cried Cacambo. Everyone will take you for a Jesuit with dispatches to deliver. And we shall have crossed the frontier before they can run after us. With these words, he rushed ahead, crying in Spanish, Make way, make way for the Reverend Father Colonel. Chapter 16 The Adventures of Our Two Travelers with Two Girls two monkeys, and what happened to them amongst the savage Orions. Candide and his servant were over the frontier before anyone in the camp had discovered the German Jesuit's death. The provident Cacambo had taken care to fill his hoversack with bread, chocolate, ham, fruit, and some bottles of wine. So they plunged ahead on their thoroughbreds into an unknown country where there were no roads to be found. At last, a beautiful meadow interlaced with streams came into view, where they decided to stop and refresh their horses. Cacambo suggested that his master should take something to eat and began to set him an example. How can you ask me to eat ham, said Candide, when I have killed the baron's son and see myself condemned never to set eyes again on my lovely Cunegonde for the rest of my life? 
What is the use of prolonging my miserable existence if I must drag out my days in remorse and despair at being banished from her presence? And what will the Jesuit periodicals say? While giving vent to these melancholy reflections, he was making a hearty meal. Just as the sun was setting, the two wanderers heard some faint cries which sounded like women's voices. They could not tell whether they were cries of grief or of joy, but they rose hurriedly with that sense of anxiety and alarm which everything arouses in an unknown country. They found that the cries came from two naked girls who were tripping along the edge of the meadow, while two monkeys followed them nibbling their buttocks. Candide's heart was touched by the sight. He had learnt how to shoot with the bulgars and could have hit a nut on a bush without touching the leaves. So taking up his double-barreled Spanish rifle, he fired and killed the two monkeys. "'Thank heaven for that, my dear Cacambo,' he exclaimed. "'I have delivered those two poor creatures from grave danger. "'If I sinned in killing an inquisitor and a Jesuit, "'I have made ample amends in saving the lives of these two girls. "'I dare say they are young ladies of noble birth, "'and the adventure may therefore prove most useful to us in this country.' He was about to continue in this vein, but stopped abruptly on seeing the two girls fondly embracing the two monkeys and shedding tears over their bodies while they filled the air with most pitiful cries. "'I have never seen such magnanimity,' said he to Cacambo, after he had surveyed the scene for some time. "'A pretty piece of work, sir,' said Cacambo. "'You have killed those two young ladies' lovers.' "'Their lovers? Impossible!' You're laughing at me, Cacambo. I simply can't believe you. My dear master, replied Cacambo, everything seems to surprise you. Why should you find it so strange that in some parts of the world monkeys obtain ladies' favors? They are partly human, just as I am partly Spanish. I am afraid you must be right, replied Candide, for I remember hearing Professor Pangloss say that similar accidents used to happen in the old days, and that such unions produced centaurs and fawns and satyrs. He told me that several great men in ancient times had seen them, but I used to dismiss it as mere fable. Well, this ought to convince you that is true, said Cacambo, for you see how people behave who have not received a certain type of education. All I fear is that these ladies will play us some dirty trick. These solid reflections urged Candide to leave the meadow and take shelter in a wood. He and Cacambo sat down to supper, and after they had cursed the Inquisitor of Portugal, the Governor of Buenos Aires, and the Baron, they both fell asleep on a mossy bank. When they awoke, they discovered they could not move the reason being that during the night they had been tied to a tree with ropes of pith by the Orients, the inhabitants of the country, to whom the two ladies had denounced them. They found themselves surrounded by some fifty naked Orients, armed with arrows, clubs, and stone axes. Some of them were heating a large cauldron, while others were preparing skewers, and the whole mob was crying, He's a Jesuit! He's a Jesuit! We shall have our revenge and enjoy a good meal! We'll have Jesuit for dinner! We'll have Jesuit for dinner! My dear master, cried Cacambo sadly, I told you those two girls would play some dirty trick on us. We shall certainly be roasted or boiled, cried Candide on noticing the cauldron and the skewers. 
What would Professor Pangloss say if he had seen how unsophisticated nature behaves? No doubt all is for the best, but I must say it is very cruel to have lost Lady Cunegonde and to be skewered by the Orleans. Cacambo never lost his head. Don't despair, he said to the de- he said to the dejected Candide. I know a little of their lingo, so I'm going to talk to these people. Then don't fail to make them understand, said Candide, how outrageously inhuman it is to cook their fellow men, and that it's scarcely the act of a Christian. So you reckon, gentlemen, said Cacambo, that today you are going to eat a Jesuit. I have no objection. It is quite right to treat your enemies in that way. In fact, the laws of nature teach us to kill our fellow creatures, and that is what happens in every corner of the earth. If we don't observe the custom of eating them, it is because we have other means of making a good meal. But you haven't the same resources as we have, and it is certainly much better to eat your enemies than to leave the fruits of victory to crows and ravens. But gentlemen, you would not wish to eat your friends. You think you are going to skewer a Jesuit. But it's your defender, the enemy of your enemies, that you are about to roast. For my part, I was born in your country. And as for this gentleman, my master, he is so far from being a Jesuit that he has just killed one and carried off his spoils. That is how you came to be mistaken. To make sure that what I tell you is true, take his gown, carry it to the nearest frontier post of the Father's kingdom, and find out if my master has not killed a Jesuit officer. You will not be losing much time, for you will still be able to eat us if you find that I have been lying to you. But if I have been telling you the truth, you are too well acquainted with the principles and customs of international law not to use us courteously. The Orions were impressed by Cacambo's reasoning, and commissioned two of their leaders to make post-haste and find out the truth. The two delegates acquitted themselves intelligently and soon returned with good news. The Orions then released their two prisoners and treated them with every civility. They offered them girls, gave them refreshments, and led them back to the borders of their kingdom, merrily shouting, He was never a Jesuit, not he! Candide was full of admiration and kept harping on his deliverance. What grand people they are, he said. What fine fellows and what culture! If I had not been lucky enough to spit Lady Cunegonde's brother, I should infallibly have been eaten. When all is said and done, there is a sterling goodness in unsophisticated nature, for instead of eating me, these people behaved most politely as soon as they learnt that I was not a Jesuit. Chapter 17 How Candide and his servant reached the country of El Dorado and what they saw there. When they reached the Orion frontier, Cacambo said to Candide, The new world, you see, is no better than the old. Take my advice, and let's return to Europe as quickly as we can. But how are we to get there? said Candide. And where are we to go when we arrive? If I go to my own country, I shall find bulgars and abars cutting everybody's throats. If I return to Portugal, I shall be burnt alive. And if, on the other hand, we stay in this country, we run a constant risk of being skewered. But in any case, how can I decide to leave that part of the world where Lady Cunegonde is living? Let us make for Cayenne, said Cacambo. We shall find some of those globe-trotting Frenchmen there, and they will be able to help us. Perhaps God will have pity on us in the end. 
It was not easy to get to Cayenne. They had a rough idea which direction to take, but they found formidable obstacles everywhere in the shape of mountains, rivers, precipices, brigands, and savages. Their horses died from fatigue, and their provisions were exhausted. For an entire month, they existed on wild fruits. But at last they reached a stream whose banks were lined with coconut trees, which helped to support life and keep their spirits up. Kakambo, whose advice was as consistently good as the old woman's, said to Candide, We can't go any further. We have walked far enough. I see an empty boat tied to the bank. Let's fill it with coconuts, step on board, and drift downstream with the current. A river always leads to some inhabited place. If we don't find anything pleasant, we shall at least find something fresh. Very well, said Candide. We'll do as you suggest and trust in Providence. The stream took them several miles between banks, which at one point were smooth and covered with flowers, and at another were rocky and sterile. The river grew wider and wider, and at last disappeared into a cave under some cliffs of terrifying height, whose summits seemed to touch the sky. The two travellers were courageous enough to trust themselves to the stream as it rushed under the cliffs, while the river, narrowing once more, carried them on with frightening speed and noise. At the end of twenty-four hours, they emerged into the light of day. But their boat was dashed to pieces against some boulders, and they had to creep from rock to rock for three whole miles. Until at length, they reached a vast open plain, surrounded by inaccessible mountains. The farmer and the landscape gardener had been equally busy in this countryside, and everything which served the needs of man was pleasing to sight. The roads were crowded, or rather adorned, with carriages, magnificent in appearance and material, drawn by huge red sheep faster than the finest horses of Andalusia, Tetuan, or Mequines, and in them sat men and women of matchless beauty. This is a better sort of country than Westphalia, said Candide, while he and Cacambo were making for the nearest village. As they approached, they noticed some children, covered with tattered gold brocade, playing at nine pins, and our two visitors from the other world stopped to watch them. Their skittles were large round objects of striking brilliance, some of them yellow, some red, and some green. The travelers had the curiosity to pick some up and found that they were gold nuggets, emeralds, and rubies, the least of which would have been the grandest ornament in the Mogul throne. These children playing at nine pins, said Cacambo, are no doubt the sons of the king of this country. At that moment, the village schoolmaster appeared to send the children back to school. That must be the tutor to the royal family, said Candide. The little urchins stopped playing and left their skittles and other toys in the road. Candide picked them up and, running after the tutor, handed them to him with a deep bow and made signs to show that their royal highnesses had forgotten their gold nuggets and precious stones. The village schoolmaster smiled and threw them away, surveying Candide for a moment with great surprise before continuing his walk. The travellers did not fail to pick up the gold, emeralds, and rubies. "'Where can we have got to?' cried Candide. 
the children of the kings of this country must be well brought up if they are taught to despise gold and precious stones. And Kakamba was as surprised as Candide. In due course, they approached the largest house in the village, which looked like a European palace. A crowd of people was standing round the door, and there were more inside. Strains of delightful music could be heard, and a delicious smell of cooking reached them. Kakamba went up to the door and heard Peruvian spoken. It was his mother tongue, for you will remember that Kakamba was born in an Argentine village, where that was the only language they knew. I will be your interpreter, he said to Candide. Let's go inside. This is an inn. Two waiters and two waitresses, dressed in cloth of gold with their hair tied in ribbons, invited them to sit down to table and put before them four tureens of soup, each garnished with two parakeets, a boiled vulture weighing about two hundred pounds, two delicious roast monkeys, three hundred doves on one plate, and six hundred hummingbirds on another, as well as exquisite stews and luscious pastries, all served on plates of a sort of rock crystal and the waiters and waitresses offered them several kinds of liqueurs to drink made from sugarcane. The guests were tradesmen and wagoners for the most part, and were all extremely polite. They put several questions to Cacambo with delicate tact, and answered the inquiries he made with his complete satisfaction. When the meal was over, Cacambo thought, as indeed did Candide, that two of the large gold nuggets they had picked up would amply pay their bill. But when they placed them on the table, the landlord and his wife laughed so long and so loud that they had to hold their sides. They recovered their composure at last, and the landlord said, Gentlemen, it is obvious that you are strangers here, and we are not used to foreigners. So please excuse our laughter at your offering to pay us with stones off the road. I dare say you haven't any of our money, but you don't need any to dine here. All inns run for the convenience of tradespeople are paid for by the government. You have fared badly here because this is a poor village, but everywhere else you will be received as you deserve to be. Cacambo interpreted the Lord's remarks to Candide, and Candide heard them with the same wonder and bewilderment that his friend Cacambo showed in translating them. What country can this be? said one to the other. It must be unknown to the rest of the world because everything is so different from what we are used to. This is probably the country where all goes well, for there must obviously be some such place. And whatever Professor Pangloss might say, I often notice that all went badly in Westphalia. Thank you for indulging in a story with me today. If you enjoyed it, please consider following and rating the podcast. It helps other people find and enjoy the show too. If you want to get in touch with me, there's an email in the show notes. I'd love to hear from you. You may have noticed that we have new show music. This piece of music was composed by my dear friend Rachel Robinson, played by the wonderful Andreas Gateman, and audio engineered by the talented Devin Lamont from the band Crash Kick. Our episode album art was drawn by the exquisite Georgia McInnes. We'll be back next week with the next piece of this wonderful story. Till next time, friends.